Hello, this is Mimi A. And hello, I'm Helen Black, and welcome to the MSG Pod, episode two. Episode two, we're still here, we're still here. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening and uh, subscribing, um, that's really lovely. And we've got a few letters from people, say letters, from yes. old school, emails <laughs> old school. <laughs> and, and direct messages. I feel, like, I feel like I'm like uh, Philip Schofield or Sarah Breen from like Go, know, go, go Live. Oh, thank you for your letters. <laughs> oh, can you dear. read one of those letters to us? Sarah? Yes, we've got a really lovely message from one of our listeners. Um, his name's Carr, so I'll just read this out. Um, hey guys, uh, well done. I really enjoyed the podcast. I'll be honest, I wasn't totally sure about having a white man on discussing race, but Tim was thoughtful, articulate and mindful of his own position of privilege. I really like the discussion about balancing being an ally while also giving space for others to talk. I mean, food isn't just food, it's culture, right? That's why we get angry when Chinese food is called dirty if cooked by a Chinese man in his 50s, but white guy in his 30s is cool. I'm looking forward to hearing the next episodes. I think this is a great idea, the lived experience of being second generation, and in particular, combining that experience with an articulate and thoughtful voice is really coming through. As second generation, I'm loving it. That's really nice. So nice of her. This is Lulu, Lulu, Lulu. Um, she said, I listened to this this morning. Don't stop ranting, Tim. It was one of your MSG rants on the kitchen cabinet a few years ago and then subsequent reading in various cookbooks that taught me I was missing out on umami goodness because of racist drivel. Now I'm the one challenging people when they say crap like MSG gives me headaches whilst they simultaneously munch on a bag of highly flavour enhanced crisps. There is power in the drip, 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 even if it feels like it's dripping into the sea sometimes. So there you go. There's some Yay. MSG love for everybody as well. Yeah, MSG love. We love it. Now, I saw on the Instagram you were saying that you weren't feeling like cooking. You were feeling kind of blue. Yeah, so basically, you know, I've kind of, over the years, suffered from depression on and off. And so, you know, I'm quite sort of mindful of it and, you know, I've kind of managed my condition um, pretty well. But there are times when I think everyone gets it a little bit where you just feel too blue to cook. And sometimes the answer is, you know, picking up the phone and calling in the takeaway. Or sometimes it's, you know, getting your partner to cook. But yesterday I was feeling quite glum and I kind of had a takeaway on Friday. So I knew I couldn't really spend the money again to get another takeaway. So I thought I should should probably cook something and cook something nutritious for the kids. But then sometimes it's a real struggle. Um, so yeah, so I kind of started and as I started, I thought I wondered if anybody else was feeling this way. And so I just put a shout out on my stories on my Instagram. Um, you know, what, what do you guys cook when you don't feel like cooking? And got some really nice responses back, actually. Um, lots of people saying when they're not in the mood to cook, they cook uh, instant noodles, eggs. You know, eggs are great. They're quick. Eggs and noodles. Eggs and as noodles well. as well. <laughs> and rice. Rice came up a lot, which was good. Um, so, you know, got a big rice family out there, which is nice. Um, rice, congee, anything you can put in the um, rice cooker, actually, is um, always quite good when you're feeling low, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and it, some... It's being able to press that button. Yeah, I think so. It. And then sometimes, actually, it's, it's just mustering that first bit of energy to put some mm-hmm. rice on. And then once the rice is on, you know things start to fall in place a little bit you know mm-hmm. so it's kind of the rhythm of you know getting the rice cooker opening it up and putting the rice in washing it uh turning it on and then you know have about an hour um or so to get everything else together rituals yeah so it's rituals. Kind of ritual. so that's kind of that can yeah. be quite soothing as well it's interesting you know what you were saying about kind of food that makes you feel better because obviously there's you know there's stuff there's comfort food the classic you know i, I often 
this is you know I, I sometimes will just eat a bowl of mashed potatoes which is weird because I don't actually like potatoes that much usually but sometimes I, I just want to eat potatoes because it's, <laughs> and it's starch it, and it's easy it's it goes starch. down easily doesn't it and it's easy yeah, to digest and then I just become comatose on the sofa um so that's good but obviously there's there's science behind food as well um so you know that you can eat stuff that will make you feel better and not just because it's kind of a placebo effect it's stuff that's actually helping lift your mood um lift your you know yeah and i think i'm feeling. i think i'm quite mindful of this as well because mm. there's ways that i would feed myself um, when I'm feeling low and then there's the kind of additional responsibility of feeding the family and mm. feeding the children and being mindful of their uh, nutritional needs as well because you know while I'm yeah. not against having you know an occasional McDonald's for dinner I, I sort of I do feel that it's important for, for us to sit down together in the evening with, with some rice you know and and like from them to make sure make to make sure that they have some greens you know and to have some exactly. oily fish and actually yesterday when I was feeling low it was a tip that I got off um, from Kimberly Wilson, actually, who we were about to interview, um, mm. which was, uh, yeah, tin, tin fish, oily fish is just really good for you. And it's really quick. You just open the, the tin and then um, put it on a plate. And then, that, you know, it's it's a, a, a superfood, isn't it? And takes no effort mm. at all. So, you know, I was kind of mm. making the effort for when I'm feeling down to make sure mm. I have something that is good for me nutritionally, as well as, you know, something self-soothing. I think mm. so that's good we're really pleased this time around that our guest is Kimberly Wilson Kimberly's a chartered psychologist she has a master's degree in nutrition and she's just won a creative impact award for best nutrition and science you might know her as a baker as well because she was on Great British Bake Off as a finalist a while ago but I think she's one of the people who has kept us going throughout this very strange period of time, partly because she has a book come out, which is called How to Build a Healthy Brain. And that book came out about a week before the shit hit the fan? The book came out 5th of March. And then when we, you know, the we were looking at, oh, will we go into lockdown? What's happening in Italy? And then certainly by the end of March, it was like, go home stay in your houses. So uh, yeah, it was kind of literally just before lockdown and uh, and then it was a different world, essentially. Obviously, when you wrote it, it was a completely different time, but it seemed so weirdly prescient and timely in terms of the advice that it gives. Did you know? Did you suspect something horrible would happen? The book was really written because I have this ongoing frustration with the way that we talk, in, unlike the way that we talk about any other kind of health, when we talk about mental health, we don't talk about the brain, right? People are talking about asthma and they go to their doctor. Their doctor will say, well, this is how your lungs work and these are your bronchioles and this is what happens. There's an irritation, da, da, da. If you just got a diagnosis of, of diabetes and we'd be like, oh, this is what happens. And these are your, this is your pancreas and these are your beta cells. And this is what, you know, these are the outcomes. But we talk about mental health as completely distinct from the organ that underlies those functions. We talk about mental health as ethereal and out there and completely unrelated to the brain. And it doesn't make any sense because your mental health, your mental functions and capacities are a an outcome. They're part of the process of, of your brain working. They are an emergent property of the activities that go on in your brain. So it doesn't even make sense that we talk about mental health without even mentioning, just in passing, just for courtesy's sake, talk about the brain. It doesn't make sense in as far as depression is the leading cause of of global health burden. So uh, the biggest thing that's causing people loss of 
quality of life, loss of satisfaction, most distress, physiological symptoms, back pain and and those sorts of things is depression, a a disorder of the brain. The biggest killer in the UK, certainly outside of, of coronavirus times, but our leading cause of death in the UK is dementia, a brain disease. So our, our leading causes around the world of, of, of disability and disease are brain related, yet we're never talking about how to take care of your brain. This is this really strange disconnect between the things that are causing us most harm and the things that we focus on. And so the book came out of that, that, that kind of realization that there's a big, strange separation and, and disconnect between what's happening, what people are suffering from and, and what we know about the evidence and the information about what we can do about it. Because I guess a, a lot of it, I mean, I guess the primary reason there's that disconnect is because, especially in the Asian community, I would say, but generally there's the, you know, the whole stigma about admitting there's anything wrong with you, right? Because it's okay to say you've sprained your ankle, but to say that, you know, you have depression, even now, especially now, I think people are ashamed to mm. say anything. Mm. Um, and, you know, how, how, how do you get past that feeling of, of thinking, I can't admit this to people? I think it's it's that sense of I, right? So because our brains give us consciousness, they give us our sense of ourself, they give us this feeling of of me being a person in the world. You know, we think of I in my body rather than I as a function of my body or as a function of my brain. And so when when there's something that goes wrong with that sense of I, so depression, I feel sad or I feel anxious or I feel lost or broken it's seen as a a moral failing a failure in innate constitution rather than really as something that's going on in your brain and your brain is a physical organ and therefore there are things that we can do yes mental health is complicated i'm not trying to oversimplify it i spend a lot of time talking to people about who oversimplify it but there are things that we can do in the same way that there are things that you can do to improve the overall function of your heart There are things that you can do to improve the overall function of your brain. And when you improve the overall function of your brain, you improve the way it performs. And your brain's performance is what's linked to your mood, your attention span, your focus, your optimism, all of that sort of stuff. So they're related and we need to be talking about it much more. And we need to, essentially, what I'm trying to do is to to reintegrate And it should take away the stigma or help to take away stigma to say that this isn't about you. It's about this organ that needs a bit more attention because we chronically neglect it. And actually, it's almost a way in for Asian parents in the sense that um, I suppose in like Chinese or Vietnamese culture, which is what my background is, is that you eat. Um, you are what you eat and you eat certain foods and it affects certain organs and there's the idea of like keeping your your insides cool like eat hay or or you know eating stuff to so you don't you protect yourself from inflammation and in a way by saying that the brain is an organ in the same way your heart or your liver or your kidneys are an organ it's a way in for asian families maybe to talk about mental health so you you know you, you're giving your children fish so that their brains will be healthy and it will improve their mood and you know their mental health in the future but you kind of that bit you don't talk about like the symptoms you don't talk about but you're going to look after the actual health of the actual organ itself so it's like so I think certainly for me only one side of the conversation is happening and not, not the other side and it's it's your book tries to sort of 
bring both together a little bit, isn't it? So yeah, no, exactly. I think it's exactly that that there we only do have a one sided conversation about mental health, which is it's okay to feel sad, it's okay to you know all all of those sorts of posts and things that we see going around. Um, and yes, it is. It absolutely is okay. But it's also you're not powerless, you know, and yeah. it's not inevitable, and you there's no need to think that you're completely helpless. You know, there are things that we can do. Um, and that's really the message I want to get across because there's one thing saying it's okay and don't and don't feel stigmatized about it. But there's also the other part of the story, which is, okay, but where, where can we intervene? What can we do? The hopeful part of it, you know, the hope, hopeful, active part of it. I don't know. I mean, from, from personal experience, I've, I've, you know, I always felt like I suffer from uh, low mood in the winter. And I think that's quite common with lots of people. But you know, I've noticed in the last uh, about three, four years, I've taken a quite high dosage of vitamin D supplement. Um, and I've noticed an improvement of my mood in the winter, you know, and I've noticed uh, my shins don't hurt as much and stuff like that. And I've taken um, an omega-3 supplement for the last few years as well. And I feel a lot better, I think. I mean, whether it's a placebo effect or whether it's, a, you know, a real effect on the actual sort of um, physical health of my brain. Um, knowing that I can do that to help like my symptoms is, is a quite a powerful thing, really. It really yeah. is. And I, some people, a friend of mine is absolutely crippled with seasonal affective disorder. It is awful for her. I know someone else who literally, she's Australian, she just goes back to Australia, like cannot bear being, yeah, just leaves. And there's that dread that she has when we hit September where she's like, this is going to be awful. It's going to be horrible. We all get it, I think, to a certain degree. Everyone feels a bit more miserable in the winter. There are certain things that, no, maybe it's not going to make it perfect and fantastic. But if you can take the edge off, if someone's got crippling winter depression and you've got something that they can do that takes 2% off, 5% off, that can make all the difference between kind of getting up and going out and being able to pick up your kids or feeling as if you can't do that, you know, and staying at home. And those are the things that actually give you back quality of life. So it's, I think it's so important, especially since other interventions, you know, either aren't as effective as we need them to be. So medications aren't as effective as we need them to be. They're not as available to as many people as we need them to be. They um, have side effects that some people don't want to tolerate or can't tolerate. Um, and, And similarly, talking therapy, isn't as accessible to as many people as we need it to be. The, the idea that there are other things we can do that can help alongside those treatments or um, preventatively or supportively is, is really important. And, and people, the thing is, this evidence is really robust. It's really very well established. It's just that most of the public don't have access to it. And, and this is the, the disconnect. That, actually, that's the thing that I really appreciated as well, the fact that there is so much science and I mean that in a good way as in it's a, such a practical book that you've written um you know even down to the kind of the the BRAC tracker that you can fill in yourself and the little surveys that you say that um you know in the book itself but also there's extra materials on your own website yeah I think it's important that you don't dumb down the science I appreciate the science you know yeah you know I did get an A in biology but I'm really I find I struggle with uh remembering uh, Latinate terms basically so I sort of said to you Mimi oh you might be better at this because you did Latin you might be able to remember some of these things but I, I know I appreciated that it's sort of broken down to science and that you sort of do um, you refer back to other studies and, and when you're not sh- sure what the conclusions are you sort of refer to them and you, and you sort of say um, what's, what's the term you might posit 
Well, the, the thing, so the yeah. thing that I really liked in Kimberly's book is the fact that she explained something I've never, never seen explained anywhere else before, which is the fact that the reason that um, scientists will say that this is supported or this is kind of posited or whatever is because there may the next day come some evidence which says the opposite. But it's not because the scientist themselves is unsure or, you know, is trying to pull a fast one. It's because <laughs> the reason it's being done like that is because this is kind of good science. And I, I swear I've never seen anything like that before. And I, I, I hate to say I've been one of those people that's been thinking, why won't they, you know, why won't they say yes or no? And that's why they won't say yes or no. And I love that. Oh, I'm glad. Yeah. So that's, I'm really glad that you've said that because someone said to me or said of me something a while ago they were like look people don't need the science they just need to be told what to do and I I personally and I know I'm I'm big on autonomy and agency for myself but I kind of find that attitude a bit insulting um you know it's it's the appeal to authority just do as I say and I think it's insulting so what I wanted to do and what I spent a bit of time doing in in those first couple of chapters is trying to help upskill people like this is no we're not going to give you a full um, module in evidence-based medicine but this is broadly what we mean by evidence and this is better quality evidence and if someone is telling you something is evidence-based then you can go back and feel confident to ask them what they mean what level of evidence it is because if you're going to change some of your behaviors that affect your health based on what someone is saying you deserve to have the best quality most relevant evidence available to you so i wanted to get that across and to give people a bit more confidence in asking so-called experts and gurus what they mean and what quality and level of evidence that they are kind of positing and, and, and putting out. Um, but also, yeah, helping to demystify some bits of scientific language because we have this very strange anti-science, anti-scientific discourse happening in the world at the moment. And, and and it's based on the idea that science is a kind of monolith. It's like the temple of science and you cannot argue against it. And it's not like that. Science is a method. It's a method of, of making observations, making predictions to test those observations and then seeing whether we can get closer to some sense of the tr- truth. And it always leaves space for new evidence, new information, new paradigms, new ways of seeing things. So they'll say, look, this is this supports our observations, this supports our hypotheses, but we know that in 10 years time, maybe some new technology will allow us to see something a bit more clearly, and therefore we're gonna leave a little bit of space for that to happen. It's really about intellectual humility, which is the opposite of what people think it is, which is scientists kind of willy-wanging and, and yeah. <laughs> trying to talk about how, how clever they are. We've kind of seen this play out in real time just over this past year, the whole thing about masks. And I think the issue with that oh, has God. been communication yeah. because initially there was the science that said, actually masks aren't that helpful. And then later on, information came out that masks are helpful. But because I don't think it was ever fully communicated how they'd got mm. from A to B, mm. people are stuck on A. And that's why, like in my local Facebook groups, you get people saying, oh, it's a form of mind control. That's why scientists want us to wear masks. And you just think, oh. I was in Oxford Circus yesterday and there was the anti, well, anti-lockdown protest, but included um, anti-masks, you know, don't wear masks. Um, and and, And what was really interesting, and I hope these people keep the same energy 
if at any point there's an argument about you know reproductive rights but you know people out there with the signs that say my body my choice and I say I hope you keep that energy when we're trying to ensure that people have reproductive rights because you're making you're saying your rights are being abused because of you don't because you know you have to wear a mask and actually there are bigger issues at stake that perhaps you turn away from because they don't involve you so I wonder what the Venn diagram is I'm pretty sure it's <laughs> I don't know I mean I don't want to say too much but I imagine it's pretty much a full circle so yeah. so there's a chapter in your book on how social media and technology affect the brain how do you or can you use social media in a way that's healthy the big debate around technology and social media is that we have seen increases in psychological distress in the age group of young people who grew up with smartphones in their pockets, like the the, the Gen Zers, um, who were basically technology natives. They were born with all of these apps ready to go by the time they were about 10 years old. And that has correlated, at least, with an increase in psychological distress, especially amongst girls. The amount of self-harm and depression in girls has gone up incredibly rapidly over the last 10, 15 years, faster than it has uh, ever, you know, since records have begun. One side of the argument says people are spending too much time on screens and tech and it is damaging. And the other side says, well, it doesn't seem to just be about the amount of time you spend on these devices or on these platforms. And as with most things in life, it falls somewhere in the middle, that it seems to be the way that you use social media that makes a difference as to whether it's gonna have a, a more positive or more negative outcome on your mental health. So the negative, more harmful way to use social media is passively. So if you find yourself just picking up your phone because you're standing in a queue or you're sat at- Doom scrolling. Doom scrolling, you're sat at lights. So this kind of passive, just scrolling through stuff because it's it's habitual and you haven't really thought about it. That tends to be associated um, and you're not really commenting on things, you're just kind of scrolling through images or stories yeah. or tweets and things tends to be more associated with negative outcomes whereas if you use your social media more deliberately so you're po- posting interesting um, and positive content you're using it to engage actively with people that you like and or admire you're using it to follow a diverse range of people whom you admire and you're using it at, you know in a deliberate way as in not passively you're kind of going on for a purpose for a reason and then getting off and living your life then yeah. your social media usage tends to be associated um and and this was shown particularly for girls for young girls with better mental health outcomes they felt more ambitious they felt more capable more confident they felt more able to um start actively pursuing their career goals and their ambitions so it seems to be the way that you use it which is important and I think that's the stuff that kids need to be taught because when you give an 11 12 13 year old their first phone which I think is probably the age people start doing it you know when you're going going walking yourself to school is when yeah um is and when all your friends have one that's when parents start to give their kids smartphones and it's at that point when you want to start thinking about teaching kids how to use it this is a it's a powerful tool it's a powerful intervention it's where most people now are getting their health information so it's not just this 
it's it's not a neutral tool um it it needs to be used in a deliberate way and that's when you start need to start telling kids that that stuff in my experience i've got nieces and nephews who are in their teens and they seem to be pretty well switched on but the way they use it is they seem to have quite a nice balance in between kind of like broadcast and engaging with other people's content um and so you know there's there's proper kind of a conversation happening Hmm. um and so they've told me that they have friends who are just broadcast only so the opposite of just doom scrolling i guess um and they say that those friends of theirs are kind of i guess a bit stressed because they feel like they always have to keep up this perfect image i guess that goes back to the whole influencers thing right Mm -hmm. this idea of broadcasting again is odd because I think sometimes we need to pitch it in terms of, I, I always say, is it the kind of thing you tell someone at the bus stop? You know the way that like, if you were at a bus stop, would you whip out your phone to the 35 year old chap sitting next to you and say, do you want to see my bikini photos? Do you want to, do this is me on holiday. Like, would you do it? You know, and, and, and yet this is so normalized on social media. It's so normalized to whip out your holiday photos for absolute strangers um, in, in order to kind of broadcast this aspect of, of yourself. And, and so broadcast becomes very interesting because you need to start asking yourself, why am I sharing this information? What is the purpose? What is the function? What am I hoping to get as an outcome of this? What is it feeding into for me? And often broadcast is about validation. I am putting something out there, not because I think you need it, (laughs) not because I think it's helping your life, but because I need something back from you. So that would make sense to me that broadcast is kind of a very anxious state to be in because you're, you're, Really, you're not kind of sharing something for the sake of the universe. You're sharing it because you want back, you're hoping to get back some sort of validation and, and um, applause or, or adoration. I, I mean, the thing about Twitter, isn't it? I think for a lot of people, their greatest wish is to go viral, right? So, you know, constantly put out the photos or the, the sarcastic one-liners or whatever, yeah. just hoping that enough people will retweet them that, you know, the whole world will see them. And I just kind of think, I mean, that's great. And I, I, I admit, I occasionally write stupid things just because I think it will make people laugh. So I'm completely as guilty and complicit as the next person. But I just see that there are people that that's all they do. And I just think, wow, that must be tiring. You know? Yeah. And, and we need to think, or I think we need to think as a psychologist, what does it mean to go viral? What do we think it means? Does it mean I'm better than you? Because this thing that I said for some reason has hit the zeitgeist and has, you know, taken on a life of its own or happened to be read by the right person with enough followers to make it go viral. Like, what am I saying it means that my post has gone viral versus me having put out something that I think is meaningful and valuable and real and it only getting a kind of a a much smaller response. What does viral mean? So the one thing that was very interesting is I remember relatively recently Twitter was going to do this thing where they were going to hide likes and retweets so that the only person that could see it was the original poster Mm -hmm. and there was so much kickback because Mm -hmm. I think people admitted that what they wanted was other people to see how popular they were. It wasn't a case of them seeing it for themselves. Um, so yeah, that, that kind of, if you think about it, it's, it's actually quite ugly, isn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, I I kind of joined uh, social media quite late on, really. Cause I only got an iPhone 2 very, very late on. It was like a, like a second-hand one passed through like my uh, father-in-law. So the fact that I didn't have kind of modern technology meant I didn't like, do Facebook or Twitter until maybe 20, 2012, I think. So I was quite late on in the game anyway. So when I joined, there was sort of a, a few food bloggers. I think your face came up, Mimi, as someone to follow. So I did. And then, you know, then I saw you put a picture of, I don't know, some scotch eggs or something. I went, oh, yeah, they're nice. You know, I, I mean, I didn't really know how to do it. And so it's almost sort of showing in an empty room, really. I think I've been on Twitter now for eight years because I've never really tried to sell anything or or gain influence or buy, buy followers or anything. I've only got 500 followers I think you know and that's after eight eight years and I'm kind of okay with that I'm happy with that that's not, that's not a problem but it's again with Instagram you know I, for me I, I kind of do it as a diary for myself and it was just here's pictures of food that I've made um I wasn't concerned about gaining followers or or you know attracting attention but I do admit that with the people I do know and the people who do follow me it's nice to get a like you know, you know, oh, your, your your dinner, your dinner looks nice. You know, and and I do have to say, it feels nice when people say, oh, you know, please adopt me. That looks lovely. You know, then that that is lovely. If they invite themselves round. If they see a picture of of something I've cooked and they've invited themselves round for dinner, I, okay, it does get my back up a little bit. So, um, but yes, yeah, so I don't, I don't think I know how to use social media that 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 well. Um, but I I I I'm not sure about that though. You. I would say, what do you mean use it very well? Isn't 500 enough? Can you imagine being in the real world? If you were in a room with yeah. 500 people who so, wanted to yeah. see what your dinner was, you'd yeah. be like, I'm the queen of the world. I've got 500 people <laughs> who want to see what I had for dinner yesterday. That's that's more than enough. The, the, the positive thing that has come out with Twitter was meeting Mimi. Um, and then I was actually absolutely genuinely horrified when she asked me up with me in real life. And I was like, no, 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 I don't think so. I don't think I can do this, you know. Um, but since then, obviously, we've done like a couple of supper clubs together and then we, we hang out because you, you live around the corner and we get on, you know. But like, so you're like the first friend and the only person I've met through social media. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I met Mimi through socials as well. I mean, we would not be here, but not for Twitter, I think. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much that wouldn't have happened because of Twitter. I wouldn't, you know, have written any books unless it, you know, I was on Twitter. So it is a platform. And actually, that goes back to something else that you were talking about in terms of um, the whole kind of thing about how getting into a debate um, and whether... I mean, honey, you, you were talking about this. But... Yeah, we're talking about... Um engaging in, in genuine debate and you did that sort of nice pyramid of you know you know reproduce the pyramids about um what it means um to engage in genuine debate and and i think my question was is is that possible on twitter and i know there's a lot of doubling down whatever position you are in and stuff like that and there's been a few times when i sort of feel like you know i've been not dragged in but just sort of engaged where I shouldn't have engaged and just sort of maybe just turned my phone off I think and maybe wasted an evening you know um de- debating in inverted commas yeah no I don't think good faith debate true debate is possible on social media um I would like to be more optimistic about that I think sometimes you you can make a good attempt at being reasoned and reasonable and trying to sit on your immediate reaction and hear what the other person has to say but I think it's the nature of the platform that makes real quality debate I think impossible and I think those features are certainly with Twitter that there's no eye contact um 
human okay. beings we have the most expressive faces of of all of the creatures on the planet and and our facial expressions are part of our communication that it makes a difference to whether i say your dinner looks nice with this expression to your dinner looks nice with that expression it makes a difference to the tone the quality the sincerity how you know the kindness it makes a huge difference and we lose out a huge amount of the the nuance of our, our conversation and our interaction our communication without that we know also from um psychological studies that if you don't have eye contact you're much more aggressive when you're interacting with someone so even if you and i were disagreeing with something we would disagree in a much more hostile way on social media than if we were disagreeing in person because it's without facial expressions without eye contact it's much easier to dehumanize a person that you're talking to you're disembodied i'm just responding to 240 characters and i'm not i don't feel like i'm responding to an actual human being then it's the actual character limit which means you know if we're talking about particularly complex uh, ideas and topics you need time you just do you need time you need yeah. space and we need time to understand are we even talking about the same thing right when you say racism am i hearing this are we thinking about the same thing that i would call racism and we need you need time to get those that frame of reference right you do not have that time on social media um also in terms of time is that it's it's too easy to react your first reaction to anything is likely to be an emotional one. Um, if it's an emotional reaction, it's likely to be a defensive one because that's mostly what our emotions do is, is defend us against attack. And then, but when you are in a highly emotional state, that front part of your brain, which does logic and reason and morality and nuance shuts down. You don't need it. When you're defending yourself, you don't need to think about the other person. So essentially the, the, the platform appeals to the worst parts of ourselves um and makes it all about and also you have an audience and if you have an audience you want to be perceived as the winner if you have an audience you can't do vulnerability as easily so right. in a real debate i might need to concede i might need to say oh actually hern you're right about that bit i didn't understand yeah. i was I was coming at it from this angle and I didn't see it from your perspective, but you're right. And I'm sorry. We can yeah. do that. If it's just the two of us, I will feel much more vulnerable, anxious and defensive doing that. If I know potentially thousands, if not millions of people are watching. So I think it's the very nature of the platform that makes good faith debate impossible on social media. And that's a problem because these platforms are increasingly the way that people make decisions about really important stuff like racism, like politics, like climate justice, like science, like our response to COVID. You know, it's yeah. it's the wrong platform, but it's massively influential. Well, it's like you were saying earlier about how there is a need for humility, which seems to be stripped from this kind of platform. Yeah. I mean, I guess going back to what you were saying about aggression, um, like I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the, your work about um, nutrition in prisons. Mm -hmm. um, I know on a, a very, very simplistic level, there is the concept of hanger, right? So mm -hmm. if you don't eat enough, you don't eat on time, it makes you aggressive. I know I'm guilty of this. And as I said, that's like a very superficial reading of the whole, the whole issue. But if you could explain to us a bit more mm -hmm. about what your, um, your work is in that. Yeah, so um, the, the, the hanger part isn't even that superficial. So it really comes down to 
two things and beyond that the the overarching part of the story which is your brain is an organ um not only that that your brain is the hungriest organ in the body there is no organ that has a higher demand for for nutrients um and energy your brain is punching at 10 times its weight in terms of its energy demand right it's two percent of your body weight it's about 20 percent of your calorie consumption when your body's at rest so it's and it and it 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 doesn't have the facility to store energy. So the rest of your body, the reason that we have fat is that we have the capacity to store energy and take it with us as we go around. Um, But your brain doesn't. So your brain likes a lovely constant supply of energy and its favorite food source is glucose. There is always a glucose demand. So even if you're on the ketogenic diet and you're not taking any starches or carbohydrates, um, your body goes through a process called gluconeogenesis where it breaks down predominantly protein in order to turn that into glucose to feed your to feed your brain so there is always a glucose demand so your brain is an organ very hungry needs lots of nutrients and then we have two parts of the uh, nutrition and aggression story the one is literally just hunger which is when you become very hungry when your blood sugar drops and therefore there's a kind of energy crisis for your brain your cortisol goes up your stress hormones go up because it's it's stressful your brain's like this is an issue guys <laughs> we need to sort this out stop doing what you're doing focus on the immediate crisis we need to get some food in so your cortisol cortisol goes up and the whole purpose of cortisol and your you know your glucocorticoids your, your stress hormones is to create a sense of agitation it's a you know and a physiological arousal is to get you moving and slightly so that you get up and do things it's kind of motivational right it's why if you're i don't know if you're if you, you can see people when they're lining up to do a race like in the olympics you know they're shaking and they're slapping their faces and it's the physiological arousal it's that that agitation is the stress hormone getting them ready to do something but if you're doing that in response to hunger all you're likely to be aware of and this is particularly true for children is that i'm agitated you know if you can't find the words or you're not thinking about it enough or you're distracted by something else you'll lose that sense that the the reason why i'm feeling agitated is because i'm hungry um and children find it very difficult to to um to verbalize that so there's that part which is hunger raises cortisol makes you agitated makes you more snappy makes you more likely to um to be kind of mean and critical and and all of that sort of stuff and if there's already a deficit in the prefrontal cortex so if you're already not massively good at, at managing your impulsive impulsiveness or your aggression then that's just going to add into that the second part of that is the actual nutrition part which is your brain is made of nutrients your brain is made of some nutrients which you can only get through the diet and if you're not doing that then you're you're already vulnerable and your brain's already going to be struggling um you need really good communication between the front part of your brain the pfc and the the emotion part of your brain in order to tell you actually that person hasn't been rude to you you're just hungry don't worry just chill right you need lots of lovely good communication to do that and in order to do that you need to have nutrients you need nutrients to make serotonin you need nutrients to make dopamine you need nutrients to make all of those chemical signalers in your brain and when you don't have that your brain doesn't function very well and essentially it seems like you revert back to this emotion driven defensive stance and so in the the prison studies 
that I spoke about in a podcast series called Crime and Nourishment, what has been found repeatedly, so there are three, four international replications of these double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials showing that when you give prisoners nutritional supplementation, you reduce violence, incidents of violence, objective incidents of violence by around 30%. So this is really the story that you know, right back to the top of this conversation, that your behavior, your mood, your optimism, pessimism, your ability to focus is a function, is an emergent kind of operant function of your brain. Your brain is an organ and it has physical demands, nutrition, exercise, water, oxygen, that it needs to be able to work properly. And if you deprive it of that, it will not work properly. Um, and that includes being able to manage your impulsivity and your aggression. That, that, I mean, that statistic, 30%, that's incredible and shocking. And you know, it's one of those things where you just think something should be done about this because this seems like an easy win. This is my, my constant ongoing just bewilderment because this research is nearly 20 years old and the home office know about it. They commissioned the first part. They know about it. Um, they commissioned a, a financial assessment of, of whether it'd be a cheaper way to manage things or, or what kind of saving it would cost. So these calculations have already been done. And I know of two people, one researcher, one journalist who has spoken to people in the Home Office who've, who've literally been told, yeah, we don't really care, actually. Yeah. <sighs> but even if it's not done for prisons, you'd think it would be done in, I don't know, in the early years or in education. You watch old, I don't know, it was like back, one of those back in time uh, programmes on BBC where they did um, education in, I don't know, in between the wars and they would get a, a spoon of cod liver oil or something. You know, in some ways you think, well, why don't they do that? Why don't they provide, you know, omega-3 tablets to, to kids? Oh, ex- exactly that. And and the part where it's it's most tragic, because in the, in the podcast, I made, I, I kind of drew a line between childhood hunger and malnutrition and increased risk of going to prison and there's a pretty clear line to be honest so this is the tragic part of it which is we have children who are growing up in poverty um, with food insecurity and malnutrition they are overlooked partly because and you'll see on twitter quite often you know why should we feed the kids if the parents how, you know, if you can't afford to feed your kids, don't have your kids, don't smoke and all of that stuff. So, and also the shame, you know, kids often won't say if they're hungry and it's very embarrassing. So you've got a group of incredibly vulnerable children who literally aren't being nourished enough for their brains to develop in a healthy, optimal way, who go along this pathway where if they're hungry, they're more likely to be agitated and aggressive and more likely to act out in school, more likely to get into fights. Um, Carmel Carmel McConnell, who runs Magic Breakfast, said that in her schools, where they have done a comparison, where some schools have given breakfast to the children and some schools haven't, they've reduced fights in the first break by 30% just by giving children breakfast. Yeah, just, by giving breakfast. just by giving them breakfast. Look, that, that statistic, 30%. Oh my God. 
keeps coming up, right? And this is the relationship between hunger and aggression, between being properly nourished and having a brain that is can work properly. Um, and, and again, if you imagine, we all know the kids get, that got labeled the naughty ones or the bad behaved ones. And not just that it's, um, it kind of sticks personally, you know, it gets underneath the skin and, and makes you think, Am I, is there something wrong with me? Am I just a bad kid? You know, is there any point in me trying because I'm just bad? Or maybe you were just hungry actually. Yeah. Um, and then also these labels do stick as much as teachers try to be objective. If you're taking over a new class and you get a list of the kids who are naughty, it's going to affect the way that those children are treated. So it goes along and then you get to a point where these people end up in prison and then it's like, oh, well, it was all your own fault and you should have tried harder and you knew the rules and you knew good from bad. And, you know, and it's, it's really a way for society, I think, to just absolve itself of responsibility to look after neglected and vulnerable children um, and, and to, to think of ourselves as, as beyond reproach. It's just, it's neglect across the board. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like when, um, when listening to your talk with, with Jack Monroe and Zoe Williams and, you know, where Jack just sort of says, just feed the kids, you know, and it's just, I was just like, just nodding my head. My head was about to fall off. It's just, it's just so simple, isn't it? Just feed the kids. Yeah. I often say every now and again in my stories, I just say, feed children. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It's not controversial. Yeah. It should be the least controversial thing we've ever said to anyone. Why should a child go hungry? Even if you think their parents have been irresponsible, selfish, you know, bad people, that's not the children's fault. The child didn't petition to be born to these parents. They weren't sitting in heaven one day writing a list of the parents they were wanted to be born to. It's not the child's fault. So you can, you're welcome to punish the adult in any way you see fit, but you cannot punish the child for being born and being hungry. It's the most amoral position I've ever heard from a sensible adult human being. Normally our conversations end up with tear down capitalism, but you know why? Why can't why can't princes uh, fish, like just donate or or like you know indoctrinate kids in year reception and year one and and send them home you know uh, with two cans of, of of oily fish, you know once once a week you know for, for oh, the first. Oh, princes you know, the two brand. Years. Sorry, I thought you meant the wrong family. I was very confused. No, 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 no. no. So it's just a brand of fish. So whatever you know, and it'll be a way in for kids well, to eat oily is... fish some sardines on toast twice a week you know make john it part west. of the homework make, make some fish cakes we're not fussy john west whatever fish company give children some fish but even like going back to this idea of you know we it, it would be very easy and very cheap so when they way back in 2000 and something when um Bernard Gesh was doing these assessments for the Home Office for how much it would cost to give prisoners uh, nutritional supplements. He came to a figure of around 10 to 11 pence a day. That was nearly 20 years ago. We know that ingredients are cheaper now. We know that supplemental, you know, people, all sorts of people are starting their own supplement companies because they're buying them in bulk and like, weighing them out at home and all sorts of things. Exactly. So we know that it's cheaper now. It would be very very cheap and very cost effective to just supplement children in schools to 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 get a letter that goes home to your parents and your parents can opt in or out would you like your children to be given a vitamin and vitamin and mineral supplement at school 
yes or no. And then, yeah. and then at least you've covered your bases. You know, you've covered your nutrition. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be perfect. It's not ideal. We'd love people to be having salmon at home and lots of leafy green vegetables. But, you know, in lieu of a utopia, it's a very practical, low cost intervention, which is likely to have really positive benefits for the long term. But the problem is that we don't think long term. We think for years at a row in a, at a time because that's what our political system requests of us just from my own personal experience and i i can i know there would be immediate pushback because you know these there are people who would just see that as an infringement on their civil liberties and i'm not kidding the fact that oh you're, you're going to give my child a supplement how dare you no but even since of the scheme existing oh, um wow. Put it this way, okay, so uh, we have this thing, uh, this flu flu vaccination is administered through schools when mm-hmm. your children are a certain age. And I have parents in my WhatsApp groups, I might have to cut this, but there are parents in the WhatsApp groups who are like, I'm not sure about this. I, 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 I don't agree with this. I don't agree. And you just kind of think, yeah, fine, whatever. But don't try and convince other people in the same group to change their mind as well. If you were a parent who was aware of the evidence and particularly if you're a parent who was aware of the evidence and you didn't feel that you were in a position to be able to make sure that your children were getting what they needed. I, you know, I, and I don't think it's nanny state. Is it nanny state? Or maybe it I'm is. not against nanny state. Maybe it's a bit nanny state. I mean, and we're not, right. but you know, you know, yeah. people are like, no masks, no this, no that, the other. Um... And then, then can, they can exercise their choice. I just think like as a government, you should be responsible for the health of your nation and, you know, it's a very small intervention, preventative intervention early on, which will have reap benefits, you know, 30, 40 years down the line. You know, I mean, like what were you saying about like free school milk? Well, can you imagine know, for the cost of like fish, a few pennies a day, you, know, you might have you know. fewer people in prison in 15 years time. Like, yeah. and, and prisons are expensive. It costs what upwards of £70,000 a year to, to house a prisoner. Yeah. And then what you're saying about, you know, how dementia is a massive killer. And obviously a big, you know, drain on NHS resources. Again, fish tablets earlier on, you know, have, you know, save money in the long run, wouldn't it, as well? It's nuts, isn't it? And things they've got all this evidence in front of them and yet yeah, they're still not doing anything this is about the world. it. And you just think what what is what is what's their um Kimberly's right, it's completely cynical. It's the they're thinking of how long they're in term for. In between the four and five years, yeah. <sighs> Tear down capitalism. Tear down capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Every single interview is just going to burn it down. Just burn it down. Burn it down. Start again. No, we need to. We need to problem solve. This isn't really related, but I was just thinking about like consumption of media. So you know, Kimberly, in your chapter, you were talking about the news. Mm. What you were saying about how it's changed from being a service to something that is basically clickbait just terrified me because it's you're so right. I mean, they are vying for our attention, mm. and as a result, they are feeding us stuff that just makes us constantly anxious and upset and panicky or yeah and I can't remember where I saw it now where it was if you're a certain personality type watching the news isn't good for you and I, and I kind of mm. sort of learned that of myself a few years ago where watching the news was making me anxious and so I don't watch the news now because I wait to hear about it secondhand either on the radio or but, I but read it instead so there's not so immediate so I'm not yeah. watching it because it just was making me anxious. Kimberly what what is your best advice to stop us being overwhelmed by the constant doom in our news feeds. 
Um, I, I, I don't think we need anywhere near as much news as we consume, like anywhere near. And yeah, I think in the, the, when news changed was when news got its own channel. So it stopped being, this is the nine o'clock news. This is the 10 o'clock news to this is news all day long. And we don't have all day long news. You just see the same things over and over and over again. Um, and now they're advertising, advertising funded. They, that, that format, that model means that we need eyes on the more eyes on the more revenue. And, and that's what we're aiming for. It's about revenue. But essentially, again, coming back to adaptation, your brain is not adapted to take in all of this information, all of this bad information um, all the time. And also particularly where there's nothing you can do about it, right? If you, if you imagine somewhere in our history, we would have received bad news. You'd be like, the, the, the tribe across the valley is, uh, it's 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 coming over. There's going to be a war. You'd be like, okay, thank you for giving me that piece of news. There's something I can do about it. Either I'm going to tool up and get ready to fight, or I'm gonna just pack my bags and leave. But there was something that you could do with this bad information. But with news now, you might be reading about a an annex, you know, Russia annexing part of the world. There's, I mean, other than giving money, there's little you can do about it. But because we're an empathic species, you'll feel bad about it or you'll feel scared about it. You'll feel anxious about it. There's nothing you can do about it, but you're just switching on your stress system, your stress hormones, activating your inflammation, making yourself sick or being made sick because there's nothing you can do to actually do anything with that stress because the way we're adapted to deal with stress is to feel it and then do something, right? Run, fight, you know, so all of that sugar and, and the fat that are dumped into your blood by your stress hormones when you feel stressed gets used up in an action. What happens now is that you feel stressed, dump sugar and fats into your blood system and then just sit there. And that's why stress is associated with greater risk of heart disease, dementia and all of those sorts of things, because there's no way of bringing yourself back to kind of physiological balance or homeostasis. So I don't think anyone needs anywhere near as much news as you, as you're consuming. I stopped reading free sheets at Metro and Evening Standard years ago, because I was thinking, and particularly maybe with my job, I would do a full day of clinic and then I'm coming home and reading more bad news. Like it's just not, it's not good. Um, I started consuming my news in the form of satirical news shows. <laughs> so, it's, right. So essentially I was getting the headlines in a comedic format. And, and so it was like, it was nicely buffered for me. Like, oh, that's terrible, but that's hilarious. So like, yeah, um, all through other people. So, at some point someone is going to tell you, oh, we're now in tier three or we're now in, you know, someone else is going to tell you. So I don't need to be hooked onto a news app, getting that information drip fed to me all the time. I can just get it from someone else. So I reckon choose two good, reliable sources of news, check them once in the morning and once in the evening. And if anything happens in between, you'll know it at the next bulletin. You don't need to know anything else other than that. I did read your um, chapter on breathing and the, is it Vagus? Vagus nerve. Vagus nerve, yeah. Vagus nerve. Um, and where breathing and singing um, can sort of stimulate the nerve and sort of help with inflammation. Is that right? Did I, did I understand that right? And then so it's official that singing power ballads 
in the shower is good for brain health. Is that right? That's what I'm saying, guys. <laughs> and, well, it's, it's about... So, so my question, my question was, what is the best ballad to sing for improved brain health? <laughs> okay, so with the caveat that we haven't done any clinical trials on this, just yet. <laughs> Really, we're talking about three things, right? It's that it's the constriction at the back of the throat, a deep belly breath that help that um, really engages the diaphragm. So most people breathe right at the top of their chest, like, <laughs> um, and so we want those deep breaths and that long constriction at the back of your throat. So anything where you're holding, where you have to take a big deep breath and hold a long note. So the end of "I Will Always Love You" is a great one. <laughs> The Bodyguard soundtrack, absolutely. Um, Mariah, Mariah Carey, circa 1990. You know, the Emotions album. Where she, before she went, like yeah, exactly. Before she went R&B, like the, the proper ballad era. Um, Celine Dion. <laughs> Celine Dion, absolutely. Like your divas, your classic divas. It's all about the long notes. It's all about the long notes. Because the way you're having to constrict the back of your throat in order to slow that exhalation, to hold that note. Although ideally it'd be coming out through the nose. If it gets you deep breathing um, and getting that lovely resonance in your in your chest, then we'll, we'll take meatloaf and <laughs> extreme. <laughs> At the end of every chapter in your book, you have your takeaways, so your summaries of the most important things to remember from each chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want, read. <laughs> no, I've read, I have actually read more than that. I have actually read more than that, I know that's terrible. Um, but if you wanted people to have just one takeaway, I know it might be hard to narrow it down, what is the one takeaway you would want people to have from your book? Um, the overarching principle is prevention. We should be applying the principle of prevention to mental health in the same way that we do physical health because your brain is a physical organ. And the one practical thing would be oily fish. It comes back to it over and over again. I'm, I'm doing a little bit more. I'm re- watching some lectures now at the moment and just the evidence just keeps coming back and back and back to these structural fats being so essential to laying down the foundations for a healthy brain and everything everything about who you are, your dreams, your hopes, your ambitions, your academic achievement, your ability to have relationships comes down to having a healthy brain. So we need to start with a healthy structure in the first place. So that was Kimberly Wilson, who is such a force for good in this world. Um, Her book, How to Build a Healthy Brain, is out now. And like I said, we heartily recommend you reading it. She continues to kind of give advice and tips um, over on her Instagram, also on Facebook and also on Twitter. And her social media handle for all of those is Food and Psych. This was the MSG pod with Mimi A and Herne Black. The theme tune is by David Black and was produced by Vellum Hill. Tune in next time when our special guest will be the comedian and actor Evelyn Mock.